0: Well, I want to welcome everyone this morning. So good to see you here. Happy Easter. I want to welcome those here in our celebration service. Uh, We have people, though, worshiping today in a lot of places. Welcome those who are worshiping here on our lower level, those that are worshiping in our chapel, our summit service that I got to stay and worship with them some this morning, and then those in the Uh, fireside room off our summit service and of course all those that are worshiping from home it's good to see everybody here last year such a such a disappointment it was Easter and we celebrated Easter but we missed this and I'm so thankful we can do this today if you have your Bible turn with me to the gospel of John chapter 19 John chapter 19 I want to begin with the question who is Jesus Christ? Simply the most important question that we could ever ask or answer, who is Jesus Christ? We know that he is the central figure in all of history and all of culture. In fact, I was reading this week, uh, Yale historian, Jaroslav Pelikan, uh, in the Huffington Post, said this, if it were possible with some sort of supermagnet to pull out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of Jesus' name, you would end up erasing almost the entire 20-year, 20-century history of the world. Uh, Swiss historian Philip Schaff, a century ago, described Jesus' influence on our culture and our history by saying, this Jesus Christ of Nazareth, without money and arms, Conquered more millions than alexander the great caesar mohammed napoleon combined without science He shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined without eloquence of schools He spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since and produced effects which lie beyond reach of any and every orator or poet Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. Jesus has had such an impact on history and culture. But you can't answer the question, Who is Jesus? just by looking at our history. You have to answer the question, who is Jesus, by looking at the Bible. The Bible is a book about Jesus from beginning to end. That's everything. That's its focus, Jesus. Even in the Old Testament, which doesn't name Jesus by name, it's still a book about Jesus. In fact, the Old Testament teaches us about Jesus by allusion, not illusion, but allusion, The Old Testament presents people to us, and we see them in all of their grandeur, and then the Bible says the Messiah is coming, and the Messiah is better than what you see. In fact, in the Old Testament, there are really three different offices. There are prophets who speak to man on behalf of God. Then there are priests who speak to God on behalf of man. And then there are kings who help their people live victorious lives as the children of God. And so in the Bible, we see in the Old Testament, people in all three offices and people that you've heard of prophets, such as Moses or Elijah priests, maybe you don't know these names as well, but people like Aaron or Eli and then Kings, that's pretty easy people like David and Solomon. And so The Old Testament, the Hebrew people saw these people, the prophets, the priests, and the kings, and then they were told, Jesus is the better prophet. Jesus is the better priest, and Jesus is the better king. And last week, we spent some time, did a deep dive in Hebrews chapter 9, and we learned how Jesus is the better priest. Today, I want to show you how Jesus is the better king. Philippians chapter two says it this way, God highly exalted him, Jesus, and gave him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. Jesus is our King. Now you might not have thought of Jesus as King. We talk of Jesus as Lord. We say he is the Messiah, but does the Bible say he is the King? Well, it does. In fact, there are two different coronations, two different crownings of Christ as king in the Bible, and I want to show both of those to you today because while these these are similar in some respects, they're very different, they're both important, and to really understand the second coronation of Christ, you have to first understand the first coronation. So that's where we'll begin, John chapter 19, I want to show you first of all that Christ is king and he was crowned with thorns. Christ is king and he was crowned right here in John chapter 19 with a crown of thorns. Now the setting, just so you'll know what we're reading. Jesus has been arrested by the Jewish authorities. They have taken him to the Roman authorities, specifically Pilate, the Roman governor, and they have demanded that Jesus be executed by crucifixion. And so the governor uh, makes a feeble attempt to, to get out of this and let Jesus go, but he fails. And so while he's trying to make his final decision, he has his soldiers take Jesus to the side and something happens. And that's what we read in John 19. Let's look. Verse one says, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns. There's the coronation, a crown of thorns, and put it on his head and clothed him in a purple robe. And they kept coming up to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were slapping his face. Now let's get the picture of what's happening here. Uh, It says that they were flogging him. In those days, they would tie a person to a post or over a rock. So that his back would be exposed and they would take this long whip, leather whip, on the end of the whip would be small pieces of bone or rock tied to the, to the pieces of the, of the leather. And they had professional torturers that were that were skilled at causing the greatest amount of pain while keeping the prisoner conscious. And so they would lash this person, pulling pieces of skin off his back. It was, a, it was a terrible thing. In fact, in some places in the Bible, they refer to 40 lashes minus one as the sentence. Do you know why they would call that? Because these lashes were so bad that the thought was that if you got 40 of them, you would die. And so 40 lashes minus one means to whip somebody right to the edge of life. And so he was flogged. And then it says they make this crown most likely out of the branches of a date palm that has these long barbs, these spears on it. And when they're dried out, especially, they're very, uh, very sharp and very hard. And so they would have made this crown of thorns. They're mocking him. They, They press it onto his head, causing blood to come down and cover his face. Bible says that they... That they held him king of the Jews. Put a purple robe on him, which was the, uh, the sign of royalty. They're making fun of the fact that Jesus had called himself the king. And they're hitting him on the face. And what's interesting here is that these soldiers unwittingly are portraying God's curse on sin. We talked about that last week. We learned that without the shedding of blood, the Bible says there is no forgiveness of sin. Now the shedding of blood, that's how the Jewish people thought of death. And so here this shedding of blood is being inflicted upon Jesus. He is, he is bleeding for our sins. And so we learned last week that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And then we learned the reason for that is Romans 6.23, Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. Because we've sinned, A holy and a righteous God says that what we are due because of our sins, Romans 6, 23, is death. And so here these soldiers are, they're portraying just just the reality of God. That without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And here's the important thing. They are crowning him king of sinners. I want that phrase to stick in your mind. Here Jesus is crowned. They crowned him, they didn't attend this, but they crowned him and they crowned him the king of sinners. That's who he was at that point. That's that's who he came to be, the representative, the king, the leader of sinners, people like me and you. Now I want you to to have this in your mind. Uh, Jesus is tied, they are uh, striking him, Uh, Pulling skin off his back such that perhaps even muscles and bones are exposed. He's quickly losing fluid. He's gasping for enough air to stay conscious. Uh, The crown is cutting into his brow. Blood is running down his face. They're hitting him and taunting him. Now, with that picture in mind, remember this. Jesus, according to scripture, is the radiance of the glory of God. Hebrews 1.3. This is God that they're doing this to. I want you to remember that this Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of the universe, even those people who are striking him. He's the one who by his power holds it all together. Colossians 1:17. And this Jesus is the commander of 10,000 angels that he can call down and rescue him at any moment. But he does none of those things. He submits to this. He surrenders, in a sense, to these soldiers. Why is Jesus doing this? God, there, tied to a pole, taking this terrible torture. Why is he doing this? Well, three reasons. I have time to give you two. Number one, this was Jesus' heart and plan from the beginning it's important to know that this was not an accident that happened this is not something that was a surprise this wasn't an unfortunate turn of events this is something that was planned uh, from eternity past in fact Philippians chapter 2 there's a description of of really the thought process of this why it is that Jesus is going through this let me just read some verses to you verse 6 says Jesus who existed in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. What that means is Jesus, who was God, didn't see his status as God as an opportunity to benefit himself. He didn't see his his God part, his, his being divine as an opportunity to, to bless himself, but rather... Next verse, instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant and taking the likeness of humanity, and then he came as a man. And so Jesus, wanting to bless us, he takes his status as God and uses it, and he comes as a man in the flesh. And the next verse wraps it up. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Why did Jesus surrender to these cruel soldiers? Because he had decided, he had decided that we were worth it. The night before in the garden, Jesus was praying. And he told the father, you are worth it. Looking at this hour, looking at this torture, looking forward to the the crucifixion that would happen just a short time after this. He said, it's all worth it. That's how much he loves you. And so, why did he do this? Because it was his heart and plan from the beginning. But also, he did this because this is what our sins deserved. I was reading this week Charles Spurgeon, which may or may not be a name that's familiar to you, a 19th century Baptist preacher. And here's what he said about that There was no part of our humanity that was without sin, and there must be no part of his humanity without suffering. Why did Jesus have to suffer so much? Why could there not have been an easier way? Because I am thoroughly a sinner. So Jesus thoroughly suffered for my sins. Uh, Spurgeon went on and, and said, if we had escaped in some measure from iniquity, so might he have escaped from pain. If I weren't so thoroughly a sinner, maybe he wouldn't have had to suffer so thoroughly. And he says, But as we had worn the foul garment of, of transgression and it covered us from head to foot, even so must he wear the garments of shame and derision from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot. Why did Jesus submit to such terrible torture? Because we are guilty of such terrible sin. So Jesus was crowned king of sinners. And what does a king do? As I said, A king goes ahead of his people. A king leads his people. And there Jesus was crowned king of sinners. And from there he got up and marched to the cross where he died for us. He went before us and he went for us to the cross. He paid for us. He died for us. Isn't it good news that Jesus was first crowned king of sinners? So that he could die for sinners and bring victory over sin and death. King of sinners. Now, there's a second coronation I want you to see. Uh, and this isn't recorded in John 19, but it's recorded over in Hebrews chapter 2. And you can turn there. Or I'm going to show it to you on the screen. We're going to look at just one verse. Hebrews 2, 9 tells us that he was crowned king of glory. So not just king of sinners, not just a crown of thorns, but now he's crowned king of glory. Hebrews 2, 9 says, Jesus Christ was made lower than the angels for a short time, that means he was made like us, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. He tasted death for who? For everyone, it says, because anyone can come to the Father and be saved by the sacrifice of Christ. And then it says that he was crowned king of glory. Now, this ought to make you furrow your brow a little bit. How in the world can a dead man be crowned king? That's what it seems to say. He died and then he was crowned. That doesn't seem to make sense. He's dead. You can't crown a dead man. Well, Hebrews 2.9 is celebrating something it doesn't name. And it doesn't name it because it's found throughout the scripture. The reason why Jesus was crowned after he died was what? He rose from the grave. And so this verse celebrates the fact that not only did he die, but he rose from the grave, he was resurrected, and then he was crowned king of glory, king of glory. Ephesians chapter one really connects the dots between uh, the first crown, the second crown and his resurrection. When it says, God exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead, God raised him from the dead. And seated him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, he is crowned king because of his resurrection. The resurrection was the ultimate coronation. And here's something that that I think is interesting. If If you go back to Jesus on the cross, he was being taunted there because he had said that he was the king and now he's dying. And I want to read to you some of what they said. It's, uh, I'm reading from Mark chapter 15. It says, those who passed by were yelling insults at him. So Jesus is on the cross, they're insulting him. There's a sign over his head that says that he is king of the Jews. It goes on to say, in the same way the chief priests with scribes were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let the Messiah The king of Israel, they said, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. And even those who were crucified with him taunted him. So it seemed like everything was over. But what happened? He did come down off that cross. Not as they anticipated or as they feared, but he came down and he came back to life and he was crowned king of glory. He's not only the king of sinners, he is the king of kings. Because he's the king of sinners, our sins can be forgiven. Because he is the king of kings, and we're in his kingdom, then benefits come to us, benefits come to us because we're in the kingdom of God. And that's really what I want to focus on for a few minutes. I want to talk to you about what exactly it means that he is the king of kings. What does it mean to us that Jesus is my king today, resurrected Coronated, crowned king. What does that mean? What does that mean to me? Well, I told you earlier that the Old Testament teaches us about Christ by illusion. Uh, God would, God would give a person, show a person to these ancient Hebrews, and they would see the person and they would see what he did or what she did in some cases, and then the Bible would tell them that the Messiah. Is better than this. So, if we want to see what it means for us that Jesus is our king, let's see what it meant that there were kings in the Old Testament. Kings in the Old Testament. Jesus is the better king. So, three things. First of all, victory over enemies. Uh, when there was a great king, if a nation had a great king, it experienced victory over its enemies. David was the greatest king of Israel. Everyone's heard of David. David came on the scene in popularity because he did what? Victory over Goliath. That's how how people knew who David was. And then as soon as he became king, he conquered Jerusalem, uh, which used to be a Jebusite city. A lot of people don't know that, but he, he conquered them. He had victory over them. And then over the coming years, he conquered the Philistines, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Amalekites, the Ammonites, There's a long list of them in 2 Samuel chapter 8. David was victorious. But Jesus is the better king. So what enemy does Jesus defeat for us? What enemy does Jesus vanquish for us? Not the Ammonites, not the Philistines, but Jesus for us has defeated death. Death is our enemy. Death is what faces all of us. Death, eternal death, separation from God, eternity in hell, that's the enemy that we face. And Jesus, as our king, has defeated death. And he did so at the resurrection. That's why there was a resurrection. As we sang earlier here, it put a seal on the fact that that the sting of sin has been removed. The sting of death, rather, has been removed. And it is It is defeated. Jesus gives us victory over the ultimate enemy, death. The Bible says in Revelation 1.18 that he holds the keys to death. It's interesting that when Jesus was crowned king of kings by these soldiers, they mocked Jesus, right? We saw that. But when Jesus was resurrected, then Jesus mocks death. I'll share that with you. First Corinthians 1555. It says, where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? There's, there's no power that death has over us if Jesus is our king. The truth is, everybody's going to die. If the Lord tarries every one of us, no matter how healthy, wealthy, successful, or how hard you strive to be alive, every person will die. In four short generations, no one will even remember your name except that Christ is your king right because Christ defeats death so that we can have eternal life listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians following that that mocking of death death where's your victory where's your sting listen to the next two verses the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law that says be, according to the law we're guilty of sin and our sin brings death the wages of sin is death but here's the next verse. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory. He's talking about death being defeated. You today, if you put your hope and trust in Christ, if you make Jesus King Jesus for your life, the King of Kings in your life, then death is defeated because Jesus, as the King of sinners, Went before you and went for you and paid the penalty for your sins. So, what does it mean that he is our king? It means that he brings us victory, victory over death. Now, second thing it means is prosperity in the land. See, when there was a great king in olden times, the people would flourish, there would be prosperity in the land. Uh, With David, when he became king of Israel, it was this fledgling nation, but after a few years, it was a wealthy superpower. Why is that? Because they had a great king, and that great king led them to victory and led them to prosperity in the land. I read this week that if you add up all of the treasure that David owned, that his wealth in today's terms would be north of $200 billion. That's a lot of money. It's it's not as good as it sounds because he still couldn't get Amazon to deliver, so I don't know what he would spend it on, but it was a lot of money. Now, if that's what an earthly king does, and Jesus is the better king, then what does he bring us? What is the prosperity in the land that is ours because of King Jesus? Well, it's not a material uh, prosperity. Everybody wants to have a little bit more money Uh, But ask someone a little older than you, and you'll find out that the closer you get to the end of life and the wiser you get, uh, the more you learn that, you know, financial resources are probably about the least important thing uh, for your happiness and your contentment and your peace and your relationships. And so this is not talking about material prosperity. That would be, that wouldn't be such a blessing. He's talking about so much greater, something so much greater. He's talking about if Jesus is our king, if we're in the kingdom of Jesus, we'll have real wealth, such as peace and hope and joy and love and patience and contentment. Isn't that what we want? Wouldn't you give anything for peace, hope, joy, love, patience, and contentment? That's the real wealth. And because he is the better king, that's the prosperity that he provides in abundance. Now, I want you to listen closely to this uh, because I don't want anybody to send me a letter, <laughs> uh, but I, uh, I do want you to benefit from Jesus being your king, being the better king. So listen, peace and joy, hope and contentment are scarce in our world. They're scarce. Uh, you could say that we are living in a time of famine, not a famine of food or or water, but a famine of peace, a famine of joy, of hope, of contentment. People are desperate, turning to a thousand different solutions. There is a famine of those things in the land. And there are many reasons why that is so. And I'm not suggesting that a healthy Christian may not go through seasons where he or she has a lack of joy or peace may be struggling with some of these things. Of course, that's that's a part of living in in a cursed world because of sin. But here's the message. Those walking with King Jesus will experience the prosperity of the land, which is the fruit of the Spirit of Christ. Now, here's what the Bible says, that when we're connected to Jesus, when, when he is truly in our lives King Jesus. We're pursuing Jesus. We're walking with Jesus. The Bible says that we will bear the fruit of the Spirit. And he tells us what that is. It is love and joy, peace and patience and kindness and, and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. These things will be a reality in our lives. This is the prosperity that the King brings. If you lived in David's realm... When the, when, the, when the country, when the nation was so successful, you would have flourished. There were blessings that came a part of that. Jesus is the better king. And if you live with him, you will flourish. In what? In love, joy, peace, patience, goodness. Now... There will be times, as I said, we live in a, in a fallen world. There will be seasons when things are hard and difficult. And, and, and so I'm not saying that there, there will be nothing but peace, love, and joy. But if, you were, if you're walking with Jesus, you will have more peace than you would if you didn't. You'll have more joy than you would if you didn't. You'll have more contentment than you would if you didn't. There is a real prosperity for those people who are living under King Jesus. And then there's a third thing. What does it mean Uh, that he is our king? What are the benefits to us? The third thing is it gives us a purpose for living. And this frankly is the hardest one to explain, but it's the most important one on the list. So you have to bear with me in a, for a moment or two, and, and let me see if I, can, if I can help everybody understand. When there was a great earthly king, and you know this is true if you know your history, if there was a great earthly king, uh, people would celebrate that king. People would honor that king and respect that king. People would be eager to serve him, a king or a queen. People would be willing to fight for the king. People would be willing even to die voluntarily for the king. The king would give people a purpose for living. And if you read back through human history, you see this over and over in the days of the king. It gave the people, if they had a great king, it, gave, it inspired them and it gave them a purpose for living. You see some vestiges of this in today's interest in British royalty. Uh, why in the world does anybody care what some family across the ocean does and what they have for, for breakfast in the morning? But people care. Now, that's just a small shadow, and we really can't understand what it, what it really would have been like in the days of the king and the pride and the inspiration and the purpose that it gave, it gave their, their subjects. So the closest thing I can come up with to help us to understand this principle is college football Okay, now bear with me a moment. Let me see if I can make the connection Uh, First of all, I grew up in Alabama uh, And there are a few passionate football fans in the state of Alabama and then I lived for over a decade just down the road from Ohio State University And there are a few passionate football fans around Ohio State University. Now, I live in the shadow of Texas A&M, UT, and SFA. Football, 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 it's everywhere. But I can tell you, after those experiences, that there's no more passionate fan than people who live in the state of Alabama. And it would just, during football season and even beyond, it, it is the only thing happening. In the minds and hearts of most people who live in Alabama I know people whose entire emotional well-being and mental health is tied to the success of their football team some football team that they've chosen that they have no connection with they have it practiced they have it coached they just picked this team or it was picked for them at birth however that worked and now their whole life is wrapped up in that I remember as, as a pastor of a church in Alabama, when one of the two major teams would lose on Saturday, it nearly ruined Sunday worship. Now just think about that. People couldn't come and worship God on Sunday because at 11 o'clock on Saturday, their team fumbled the football. But our attendance would go way down after a loss And then the people who did come were just mad the whole time. (laughs) We couldn't sing songs, we couldn't pray, we could nothing because their team had lost a football game. Now, I'm not making fun of football fans, I'm a big football fan. I remember early, early on when I was a pastor, my wife and I would go to Saturday night college football games and then we would get in our car after it was over, drive all night long to get back just in time to take a shower and preach at the church, uh, church that I served. I'm I'm all for college football, but here's, here's what I want you to see. God has created us in such a way that we can so esteem something that we can so worship something that it changes our behavior, our values, our attitude, our outlook, that it gives us joy or inspiration, or it gives us purpose. Do you see that we're created that way? You can get so excited about something. And whether it's football or hunting or shopping or gardening or a thousand other things, you can get so excited about something that really your life Your attitudes, your passion, your energy just revolves around that. Do you understand? Everybody everybody knows there's something like that in their lives that can just pull them in. Why would God create us in such a way that, that we could be just so wrapped up in something like that? Well, I'll tell you why. So that we could find identity and purpose in worshiping him. God created me like that, not, not so my life would revolve around football or any other thing, not so that, so that football or anything else would determine my attitude and my outlook and my relationships and my joy and my peace, but, but so that he would determine that, so that I could so be in love with him that, that my passion for him, because he is the greater king, would determine all these other things about my life. And we see this throughout scripture. Proverbs 37, four, delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Psalm one hundred one and two, let the whole earth shout triumphantly to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Philippians 4, four, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I will say it, rejoice. See, you can invest your life in whatever you choose. You can look to a thousand things to give your life purpose And meaning you can look everywhere for something to be excited about you can search for something to sacrifice for but in the end all that will count for nothing the ball team will eventually play its last game you will return eventually from your last vacation The beauty will fade the business victories will be eclipsed by the success of others and your money will be passed down to people who will never appreciate how hard you worked for it There's only one team that plays forever and never loses There's only one thing that you can invest your life in that will never end and never fail And at the end of the day that one thing that's worth living for is the better king Jesus and so, Jesus as the King gives us something to live for, gives us purpose in life that changes our attitudes, our outlook, our relationship, that gives us peace and joy and purpose and strength to, to live our lives. I like how the Apostle Paul says it. 1 Corinthians 10 31, simple verse that you've heard. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. I used to think of that verse as just an encouragement to pray before you eat. And it might be that, but it's so much more than that. What what Paul is saying is, wrap your entire life. Get your purpose from the fact that Jesus is your king. He is the better king. Because he's the better king, he's defeated death. Because he is the better king, he he has given us prosperity in the land, the fruit of the spirit. And because he is the better king, he has given us a purpose for living. He was twice crowned, twice crowned for you and for me. I, uh, I want to tell you one last story. Uh, Nicholas Zinzendorf, odd name, uh, someone that you've never heard of, but who has had a big impact on your life, read a book about him last summer He was born in 1700. He was responsible for really creating the template of Sunday school and women's Bible studies and those kind of things that we're familiar with. Uh, And he brought a revival uh, that impacted places from Greenland all the way down to St. Thomas in the Caribbean. Uh, But but here's here's where his life began to count for the Lord. One day as a college student, uh, he looked at a painting. Uh, called Behold the Man. And it had a, uh, an image of Jesus with a crown of thorns and blood down over his face. And underneath that portrait, the word said, I have done this for you. What have you done for me? And as the story goes, he stood and he looked at that painting for a long, long time. And he made a decision right there. That I will accept Christ as my king, the king of kings, and I will live my life for him. The question we face today, this Easter, is will Christ truly be the king of our lives? Just so your head bowed, eyes closed. Father in heaven, I pray that those today who have never embraced the fact that Christ Is the king of sinners and that he died for us that they will do that today not leave here until they've trusted what Christ has done for them for us on the cross and surrendered their lives to him and talk to somebody about it father lead people to do that so that they can know that death is defeated and they can know the eternal life that comes from you but father many of us we've done that but we have forgotten The second, coronation, that Christ is king of kings and king of our lives. And let us, like this uh, theologian of old, uh, let us embrace that and let it change our world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we respond to the Lord.